Welcome to The Neutral Ground. This week, our guest is Dr. Phil Rosenzweig. Phil has written a fantastic book entitled Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. Now, the original 1957 version of the film, starring Henry Fonda, is one of my favorite movies of all time. It teaches us that justice is not simply a thought. It's an act of participation, a constant dialogue between various communities of people. In this episode, Phil and I discuss the life of Rose, his connections with the great Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone and Night Gallery, the reception of the film, its slow but consistent rise to becoming the classic that it is today, and the power of the story as a tool of instruction in classrooms everywhere. As always, if you enjoy the conversation by the end, do me a favor and hit the subscribe slash follow button, leave a kind rating or comment where applicable, and share the episode with a friend on social media. You can also follow me on my social media accounts as well for some background information on the show and some additional takes on life. Also, you can check out Phil's works using the link that I've provided in the episode notes below. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Phil Rosenzweig. Phil, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're going to be discussing your book, Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. And I want to say uh, right at the beginning that the 1957 Fonda Twelve Angry Men is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was actually quite surprised at just how deep and complex of a story the movie actually has, you know, from some of the difficulties in, in making the film to its becoming a classic eventually and then to its evolving into quite a powerful tool for the classrooms even. But I want to begin actually with you here a little bit. What was the genesis of this study for you? Well, um, I'm by, by trade, I'm not um, a, a film scholar. Uh, I'm a business school professor. And I first was uh, introduced to 12 Angry Men many years ago when I was uh, a master's student, uh, a business school student at UCLA back in the late 1970s. There was a day when our professor brought the movie in. We saw a few movies over the course of the term, but one of them was 12 Angry Men. We watched the whole thing. It's about almost 90 minutes. And then we did a debrief. And there's an extraordinary amount in the movie about group dynamics, about interpersonal behavior, it's really a textbook example of social psychology. So I had remembered that, and then I went on to become a business school professor, and I have taught it over the years. But somewhere along the line, I realized that while business school people like me like the, the, the movie because of what it teaches about human behavior, there's a complete other field, the legal field, that thinks it's their movie, and they adore it because of what it says about the law at a literal level, but also a symbolic level. And it's a very popular stage play. Uh, you will see it performed by amateurs and professionals. So it really uh, intrigued me as a dramatic work that has meant so much to so many people, in addition to just being a terrific movie. So a few years ago, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to uh, write a, a short piece, I didn't think it was going to be a book, about how one dramatic work lends itself to three very different interpretations, one from a legal perspective, one from a behavioral perspective, and even a third one from a, a sort of a decision-making and probability perspective. And as I began to do that, I, I realized, well, really the making of the movie was quite interesting. So I learned a lot about the making of the movie and Hollywood in the 1950s and making movies in New York City and so forth. And that then told me, well, I should learn more about the person behind it, because the writer, Reginald Rose, um, really has not gotten all that much attention. So the way the book eventually came out, it tells the story for the first time, a biography of this writer, Reginald Rose, but also the story of the drama from its conception to its production on television, to the movies, to the life that it's had afterwards. And that's why I called it Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. Yeah, and you rightfully say at the, at the very beginning that this book has is going to have two specific narratives, two main narratives, one about Reginald Rose and, and the other, of course, focusing on the film. 
I, I came to the book because I loved the film, but I found myself really enthralled by Rose's story, actually. So can you narrate for us a little bit here some of Rose's background, maybe leading up to the point where he writes the teleplay of the film? So Reginald Rose was born in 1920. Uh, he died in 2002, so he lived to his early 80s. He was uh, from the Upper West Side of New York, uh, raised mainly by his mother, uh, and then wanted always to be a writer, but didn't find a way into the writing profession. By the time he finally sold something in 1951, he said by then he had written hundreds of short stories and a few plays and half of a novel, and had never sold anything. He had, of course, served uh, in the military in World War II, came back, uh, found a job as an advertising copywriter, but was frustrated because he really wanted to be more than that. He didn't want to write advertising jingles. He wanted to write things of, of greater import. And fortunately, it's just a stroke of luck that at that time, 1950-51, television was in its very early years. Now, for those of us who are a bit younger than than Rose, uh, you know, we grew up with television, and, and you have to you have to kind of go back and remember that in 1948, 49, 50, television was in its infancy, and what it, what that meant was that established writers were not interested in writing for television; they were interested in in Broadway or Hollywood. Uh, established directors would, didn't want to do things for the small screen. Almost all television was live, so it was very unforgiving in terms of production. But what that meant was there was incredible opportunities for young people who were very happy to be engaged in television. So Rose's first television program that he sold to CBS was for a science fiction uh, show in at the end of 1951. And then having gotten his foot in the door with CBS, he did a number of things for them over the next couple of years. One of the the funny moments, and it doesn't play it doesn't play a significant role in your story, but I just I'm a sucker for these moments. Is I lit up when when you mentioned that brief story in the book about how uh, both Rose and the great Rod Serling, mostly well known for the Twilight Zone Night Gallery, when they were both approached about writing for this show called The Challenge. And you have this, this amazing what if in the universe kind of moment where they're both supposed to write for this show. And it's only because Serling is, again, this early infancy of TV, he becomes suddenly very much in demand that Serling is unable to, to write his part of the show. And it's given to Rose. But what I liked about that was, like you just mentioned, what you show in the book is how dedicated Rose is to this craft of writing. I mean, he really considers himself a writer and he put in a lot of work and a lot of time to get to the point where he would be offered an opportunity to write something like 12 Angry Men. Yeah, yeah. Um, he and, and Rod Serling were almost the same age. They were contemporaries and they were friends. And they are often mentioned together because they were two writers who were interested in doing socially conscious uh, work. They were concerned about issues of justice and prejudice and things like that. Now, in the early 1950s, the, the greatest dramatic works on television were what they called anthology programs, where every week there'd be a different show uh, with different cast. And uh, NBC, with the Goodyear Philco Hour, was probably the first, or it was the first, to invest in good writers for original material. So writers like Patty Chayefsky, Horton Foote, and a few others wrote for NBC. CBS was a step behind. Their flagship program was called Studio One. And in 1953, they had a new producer, um, Felix Jackson, who decided that they too should invest in young writers and get them to do original work, not adaptations of books or short stories, but original work. And of the young writers that they focused on, Gore Vidal was one, Rod Serling was one, and Reginald Rose was one. So Serling and Rose were very much in that mix. Now, you said there was a point where Serling became very much in demand. The reason for that 
is because there's something else going on too. While television is growing, the relationship between television and the movies is quite interesting. Because in the late 40s, when television was just starting, the movies didn't take television seriously. They would denigrate television. They made fun of it. And no self-respecting person in the movies wanted anything to do with television. Well, that began to change by the early 50s. Television was getting traction and Hollywood was suffering at the box office. So Hollywood then responded by thinking, well, how are we going to fend off this challenge from television? And the way we're going to do that is play to our strength. And our strength for the movies is widescreen, you know, um, color, technicolor. Uh, and, and so they then began, Hollywood began to come out with these big, dazzling, full-color um, uh, motion pictures. Television then had to respond to that challenge, and they did so by coming up with now better written original material. But what began to change things in 1953, the, the first program that really um, got the attention of Hollywood was the show Marty. It was a one-hour program that Patty Chayefsky wrote, and that became the first television program to be made into a feature film. And that became very successful. And now so, suddenly Hollywood said, television is not just a rival. In some ways, it's a rival, but it's also a source of material for us. So Hollywood Studios began then to look at some of the leading television programs and ask the question, hmm, I wonder if these programs could become motion pictures. And that's where Serling got his break with a program called Patterns. So at the moment you're describing there in 1955, Serling is in demand because suddenly the studios want him to write all these motion pictures. And Two years later, the same thing then happened with 12 Angry Men, because it was first in 1954, a Studio One live drama that Reginald Rose wrote, but then Hollywood picked it up and it became a movie. This might be a, a bit of an unfair question, because I guess there's no way for us to necessarily really know, but I'm curious if you, you say they were friends but would you say that there was also then a bit of a rivalry as well, an acknowledged one, considering that they were both in, they were both placed, uh, their names were in the same kind of um, categories? Uh, I didn't see that, nor did I see that with Rose and, say, Patty Chayefsky, who was at a rival network. They were actually quite good friends. If anything, you would look at the breakthrough of one of your contemporaries and think, ooh, you know, hmm, good for him. If he did that, maybe I can do that too. There was a time in the early 1960s when Rose was now working in television on a program called The Defenders. And he and Serling had very different attitudes about network constraints. I'm using the word uh, advisedly. Uh, Serling might have called it censorship or interference. Serling was a little more thin-skinned and got a little more agitated at the limitations that networks sometimes put on him. Rose was a little more pragmatic and a little more willing to roll with the constraints and say, well, if you won't let me do it this way, maybe I can do it that way. He didn't like it more, but he found a, a slightly different way to express himself. So there was a time, and now I'm jumping ahead to 1962, when TV Guide ran a, a an interview with the two of them taking opposite sides on the writer versus network controversy. So there were times when TV Guide, in this case, or others tried almost to make them rivals, but I don't think they were rivals. I think they liked one another, and really they were, they were very much on the same side, both as writers trying to get justice and compensation for writers, but they were also very much on the same side politically, both very much interested in uh, liberal values, freedom of expression, and concerned about uh, prejudice in society and things like that. So I, I don't, I wouldn't play up the rivalry piece. I think they were much more colleagues. I like that answer. Actually, I like that quite a bit. I like thinking of it that way. So Rose is able to put on the teleplay of Twelve Angry Men in '54. Is that correct? I think. And then we have three years in between until we get to the actual film. What is that what is that time period like in moving? Is this a is this kind of a part of what you mentioned earlier of 
uh, Hollywood and TV kind of seeing, can we source from television into film? Is that what's happening here as well? Uh, well, yes, except um, be careful, a little careful on how you define those three years. Uh, the, the television program is aired. It's performed live in September 1954. And the following spring, the deal is made or the beginning of the deal is made to make it into a motion picture. So it's not three years. It's more like six months. Oh. But that leads to contract negotiations. The contract is signed in the summer of 1955. Rose is to submit the screenplay at the end of 55, and filming takes place in June, July of 1956 for a film that is released in April of 1957. So uh, that's what's going on here. But just to come back to this question about uh, how programs became motion pictures, Rose had been working on a number of programs, some on Studio One. Studio, he was under contract for CBS, and under his contract, he would submit outlines, and if CBS liked them, they would make them into programs. And if CBS did not like them, well, he and his agent could peddle them elsewhere. And so there were a few that CBS said they didn't want for one reason or another, and they would wind up uh, with NBC or with ABC. One of them that was produced in February of 1956 on ABC was called Crime in the Streets. And the next month, 12 Angry Men that had been aired the previous September wins a few Emmys. So the question then is, which of Rose's television programs will be the first one to be made into a movie? And the first one that was that the rights were bought to make it into a movie was not 12 Angry Men. It was Crime in the Streets. Why is that? Well, crime in the streets, maybe it was a bigger cast. Uh, there was a chance for a romantic subplot. It seemed a little more interesting than 12 men arguing in a room. So it's important to, to remember these things because it was not uh, guaranteed or foreordained that 12 Angry Men would go on to be a great success. Quite the contrary. A lot of people thought, well, how do you make a movie? For heaven's sakes, how do you make a movie out of 12 men standing, sitting, standing in one room. But um, when, uh, when Henry Fonda saw the uh, kinescope of 12 Angry Men, he thought it could make a good movie. And with his backers, they then decided to do so. And that's, that's what eventually then led to the deal in 1955, filming in 56, release in 57. This feeds uh, wonderfully into uh, my next question for you here. And I want to begin by just giving our listeners this, this list here. Henry Fonda, Jack Klugman, E.G. Marshall, Lee Cobb, Jack Warden, Ed Begley. And if you're at all familiar with the entertainment industry in the 50s and 60s, all the actors will be easily recognizable to you. You've seen them in other things. When you have such a powerhouse cast like this, it takes someone very special, a very special director, to pull all of this together. And that's where we have uh, Sidney Lumet enter into this. Who was Sidney Lumet, and how was he able to get everyone on the same page? Well, Sidney Lumet is the director of the movie. He was 32 years old. It was his first feature film. He had been a child actor and then after World War II came back from the army and he was teaching acting in New York. And again, when television was in its infancy, it needed people to do things like direct. He had never directed, but when he began to direct live TV, he loved it. Live television, you are directing two cameras in real time. So rehearsal and then filming, it's a real rush. And for four years, from 1951 to 1955, Lamette was uh, the director of a crime show on uh, CBS called Danger, and then a program called You Are There. It was a historical reenactment. He was doing two live shows a week, week after week, for years, which was extraordinary experience. It was exhausting, but he was a young man, and he was up for it, very energetic, it also was terrific exposure. He met lots and lots of actors, including many of the people that you mentioned. So Ed Bins, 
E.G. Marshall, uh, uh, George Voskovic, who played Jury Levin. Many of these are people that he knew from Danger and You Are There. Jack Warden, he also knew from The Challenge, the one you mentioned earlier. So, um, he, and he was good friends with Reginald Rose because uh, he had helped Rose on when Rose had written for Danger. So they were good friends. And in fact, just to loop back a bit, I mentioned a moment ago that Rose's first television program made into a movie was Crime in the Streets. He very much, and it was that was directed by Sidney Lumet. So when they made a movie of it, Rose wanted Lumet to be the director. He was the writer. He thought, well, the TV show is great. I'd like Sidney to direct it. And Lumet was looking for a breakthrough to, to get his first feature film. But the studio didn't, didn't go along with that because uh, Lumet had never directed a uh, movie before. And so they went with Don Siegel, who we later know from things like Dirty Harry, but at the time he had just come off of directing uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They wanted an experienced movie director. So Lumet did not get that job. And it taught Reginald Rose something very important, which is if you're not the producer, once you sell the script, you have no power anymore. And he remembered that because when the deal with Henry Fonda came along, to make 12 Angry Men into a movie, Fonda approached him and they co-produced it, which meant that now Rose was in a position to, along with Fonda, pick the director. And that's when Rose said, I want Sidney Lumet to direct it. Lumet then was chosen to be the director and his job was not just to direct the movie, but he took on a lot of the roles that are normally done by the producers. Because again, who are your producers? Reginald Rose, who's really a writer, he's never been a movie producer, and Henry Fonda, who's an actor, he's never been a producer. So a lot of the things that producers normally do, uh, including hiring the cast, was done here by the director. So when they decided to make it into a movie, well, the only given was that Henry Fonda was going to play the lead role juror number eight. That leaves 11 more. Three other actors were kept on from the television show, and the rest of them, many of them, were picked by Lumet from his experience with Danger and You Are There, with a couple exceptions. John Fiedler, who played juror number two, Robert Weber, juror number 12, they were young stage actors that I'm not quite sure how they came along, but they did. And then they wanted a much stronger juror three. Juror three is the, the angry father who's the antagonist to Juror 8's protagonist. And they decided to, to reach out uh, to Lee J. Cobb, who was a magnificent actor and a very strong presence on the screen. The one last minute twist was that one of the three actors from the television program, Edward Arnold, died suddenly about five weeks before filming was to begin. What do you do then? Well, that's when they reached out to Ed Begley, who was acting on stage in New York, and he did the role for Juror 10. So you really do have a wonderful cast. Um, with our vantage point today, we look back and, you know, names like Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, these seem like very famous people. At the time, they were not. At the time, they were not as well known. So the movie, this movie actually helped them along in their careers. Um, but it really is a, a great ensemble cast. And it's also, I think, a tribute to Rose when he picked a title for the drama. Twelve Angry Men suggests it really is an ensemble drama. He didn't have to call it that. He could have given it a name that made juror number eight to be a big hero. He didn't do that. He picked a title that shows it to be a collective, a group dramatic performance. Something that I found interesting, too, and when I read that, uh, Fonda was on as as a producer, is he was also quite active with Lumet in trying to set up certain scenes and shots. Do you do you know of was this was was Lumet? Did he encourage Fonda to be active in this in helping him or or not? Was there a case where they were at sometimes at odds with each other? Um, I'm not sure that's quite right, Joe. Uh, it wasn't Fonda. The person who worked with Lamette in setting up shots was his director of photography, who was Boris Kaufman. Oh, I thought Fonda was at times trying to um, to dictate what 
how to set up certain things to get the best out of people. Maybe I misread that. Um, no, it really, he, once he picked Lamette, uh, he put Lamette in charge of that. And Lamette, now Fonda was a believer in rehearsal and Fonda had been frustrated as an actor that so many of the movies he was in had almost no time for rehearsal. As a producer, he could allow rehearsal and they spent two full weeks before the filming. The filming took four, but before the four weeks of filming, the entire cast took two weeks to rehearse it straight through. But Fonda considered himself to be just one of the actors. And the person who was in charge there was Lamette working then with his director of photography, who was a man named Boris Kaufman, Russian by birth, had spent a lot of his formative years in France. And he had been the director of photography on On the Waterfront a couple of years prior, and in fact had won the Oscar for that. Lamette and Kaufman would kind of go through the rehearsal, uh, imagining the different scenes. And Fonda it was, was beloved. He was a great professional, but he did not get involved in the direction of the movie. He very much left that to Lamette. Well, I'm sure that made Lamette happy to be able to, to, to do that, to do his work. So they finish... They finish filming and and they're ready to come out with this with this wonderful film. However, there were plenty of complications even just in coming out with the film, especially considering the competition when it was released. Can you talk a little bit about how today we think of it as a classic, but upon release, it was kind of a very slow build toward that idea with complications in between. Can you talk a little bit about that history there? Sure. Uh, Well, the first thing to remember is that it was a low-budget movie, and it was uh, bankrolled by United Artists. United Artists was the first kind of virtual studio. Uh, I'm not talking about United Artists that Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford founded way back in the teens, It was a great studio for many years, but it fell upon hard times. And in 1951, it was bought by two young lawyers, um, Arthur Krim and uh, and Richard Benjamin. And they uh, had a very different model. Their model was, we're not going to own studios. We we can no longer control the distribution. We're just going to assemble things and we're going to do it in a way that is very cost effective. So 12 Angry Men had a very low budget. The total cash outlay was less than $400,000. And in order to get under that limit, Fonda had to defer his entire fee. And Rose deferred most of his fee as well. So this was uh, filmed in one studio. There's a couple location shots at the beginning and the end, but basically was, was just filmed in a studio, very low budget, and was not given a lot of attention. Uh, it, it came out in April of 1957, a week before Easter. There were already, um, well, the, the box office was dominated by big movies like Around the World in 80 Days, The Ten Commandments, uh, Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. These are, again, widescreen, color, big budget pictures. And then there were going to be some more coming out in Easter, uh, on the Easter weekend in April. And so 12 Angry Men was just one of several that came out the week before Easter. It, It was very much respected by Lowe's, the distribution house, which said, let's give it a national release and let's release it at this big cinema on Times Square in New York. However, by doing so, by putting it in a very big cinema, what that meant was if it didn't very quickly draw the crowd, they would drop it. Uh, Unlike what had happened to Marty a couple years before. Marty came out in 1955 and it played in small art houses with smaller capacity that allowed the word of mouth to build. But that didn't happen with 12 Angry Men. So it was released in April of 1957. And within a few weeks, it was no longer playing in New York. It was no longer playing in most cities. And within a few weeks, it was pretty much dead. 
What rescued it was that it had been critically well accepted and then did very well in some of the international film festivals in Europe. It won the Grand Prize in Berlin uh, two months later, which helped a bit. And it was a critical success. The critics liked it and it got a number of Academy Award nominations, but it lost every one of the awards to another big budget color movie called Bridge on the River Kwai. So there you are now in 1958, and um, pretty much the story's over. It it was a flop at the theaters, and everybody else has moved on to other things. And there was no real reason to expect that even five years later, people would talk about the movie, let alone we're talking about it 60 years later. And then after that, of course, uh, you've got this small but very powerful buildup uh, in multiple avenues toward becoming this classic, and and one of which that you talk about in the book that I love, and you mentioned this uh, toward the beginning of this as well, is how important it became as a tool for education in so many different avenues. And I'll ask you to to, to talk maybe a little bit more about that in terms of what did you find when you looked into the film as a tool for instruction in these other avenues besides just business, as you mentioned yourself, but please, you know, add on to the business part of this as well. Sure. Well, today, uh, the movie is very well known. Uh, you know, you said at the beginning that it's one of your favorites. I can't tell you the number of people have said, oh, it's one of my very favorite movies. If you go on IMDb, it's, I think, the fifth best rated movie of all time. It's up there you know, right behind, I don't know, the Shawshank Redemption or, or something, but it's also critically acclaimed. So it's a movie that has really quite a following. And one thing that's a challenge is, you know, you, what we cannot do is we cannot go back, change one variable and see exactly what led to all this. What I, the best I'm able to say is there's at least four different streams that have, that have, I think, uh, mutually reinforced. One is, it is, without question, an excellent movie. But there are other excellent black and white movies in the late 50s, so that can't explain it entirely. A second piece of the puzzle is that very quickly it became successful as a stage play. In fact, if you look at it, I mean, it, it looks like a stage play, and it was popular in the U.S. among amateurs, among professionals, uh, if you look, uh, you know, I have a Google feed where I get every day something about 12 Angry Men in the News. And I can tell you every day I, I can show you it's playing at this high school, at that amateur group. Sometimes it's called 12 Angry Men. Sometimes it's called 12 Angry Jurors. So you can have women as well as men. But it has legs. It has continued to be a very successful, dramatic um, presentation. And so I think the, the popularity of the movie has helped the popularity of the stage play, and the stage play has also continued to revive interest in the movie. And that would already be quite exceptional. However, in addition to that, there are two fields that love the movie and have, have used it as a topic for very serious scholarship. One is the field of law, and the other is the field of social psychology or organizational behavior, which is the field I'm in. I can't think of any other dramatic work that has lent itself to such very serious academic inquiry by not one, but two separate fields, in addition to being recognized as an outstanding movie and an outstanding stage play. So there's really something very extraordinary in this. And, and as I said towards the beginning, one of the curious things is if you talk to people in the field of law, they say, oh, 12 Angry Men, this is our favorite. We use it to talk about uh, presumption of innocence, about um, uh, reasonable doubt, about the nature of jurors and so forth. They think it's their movie. And then if you talk to people in my field, well, we say, well, yeah, it takes place in the courtroom. And yeah, the people are jurors. But really, that's not what this movie is about. This is not about the lives about human beings. This is our movie. And both sides are right. It just, I think, is testimony to the extraordinary richness of the material and the ability of, of Rose to weave into this rather simple, dramatic premise of a jury's deliberations enough richness to make it hugely popular to two very different fields. 
Well, let me put my bit in to take the the film for the humanities as well, to just steal it. <laughs> because uh, I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Marlon Ross, and uh, he focuses on interpretations of, of masculinity. And, and during our conversation, we were talking about James Baldwin and how Baldwin, in his debate with William F. Buckley, which you can find on YouTube, how he's able to both simultaneously command and demand even the attention of everyone in the room. And as we were talking about this, my mind went to the scene in 12 Angry Men where Ed Begley has finally had enough. And he starts talking about, you know, oh, these people, it's their way. It's their this. And the absolute perfection of this scene, when the men start to stand up, they don't say a word. They stand up, they turn, and they just walk away from him. And then at the end, as Begley starts to realize what is happening, he starts to lose the force of his of his tone. And then he's just there with the table <laughs> with E.G. Marshall. And Marshall just looks at him and says, why don't you sit down and shut up and don't open your mouth again? And I've used that scene in the classroom before to simply talk about how there are multiple ways to think about how we think of, of, of power in, in a room. Had they simply attacked him physically, it would not have done nearly as much damage as what they did to him by simply saying, we will no longer acknowledge your voice. And, and so to hear you say that Begley was kind of brought on uh, very kind of last minute uh, makes me absolutely so grateful that he was there. Uh, maybe this, I'll ask you this, do you have a favorite scene in the film yourself? Well, I'll, I'll let me think about that as I as I speak to what you just said. Yes, Please. it's a very powerful scene of of ostracism, of social rejection, of turning one's back, and even some of the people who agree with him, who have not yet disagreed with his position, they disagree with his tone. That was written into the original. So, uh, you, if you watch the television version. They also do that. Now, they can't spend as long with it because the television performance moved much more briskly. They can show it more fully in the movie. But that was something that Rose wrote and that Lamette directed. Begley, by the way, did a, a fabulous job. And a little sideline on Begley. Um, he was, of course, a veteran actor who earlier that year had landed what he thought was the culmination of his career. It was the lead role in Inherit the Wind about the Scopes Monkey Trial. And he was cast in the role of the uh, prosecuting attorney who was based on Williams Jennings Bryant. He thought it was the role of a lifetime and he played it hundreds of times. And then he swapped roles with the other lead and played the defense attorney based on Clarence Darrow for a long time as well. However, when they made the movie in about 1960, Begley was not cast in the movie. And most people have never, I've never seen him. I've seen a few still photographs. I've never seen that performance. However, his brief role in 12 Angry Men is something that he's known for. And he even said, and I, I mentioned this in the book, he said, you know, uh, people always thought I was just the man that I was acting until I did 12 Angry Men. And then they realized I was a good actor because he was playing somebody who was this, this poisonous bigot. Uh, very much different than the man he was, but played it very, very well. Let's see. Do do I have a favorite scene? You know, I, I don't. I can't think. There's not one. I know. I know this movie very well. Um, I think. I think the, the the line that I have always loved, and I've shown this movie in class many times. The class. The the line that always gets a uh, that always works is when uh, Begley says, you know, ah, this boy, he's not bright. He's an ignorant slob. He don't even speak good English. And the immigrant watchmaker says he doesn't even speak good English. And now I show this, I've, sh I've been teaching in Europe for many years, and I show this often to a group of people who 
for whom English is not the first language. And there's always a big kick in that. But that's a small, that's a small one. Um, I don't think I really have one scene that I like more than any others. Uh, there's just so many good ones. It's, it's, it's even hard to know where to begin. Yeah, that's that's completely understandable. So you you mentioned this part a little bit too, but uh, toward the end of the book, you start talking about adaptations of it and how you, you mentioned how in 2014, you've got 12 Angry Citizens in China. You have a documentary, 12 Angry uh, Lebanese. And then fairly recently in 2019, you've got the play by Sheldon Epps as well. And as I was reading this section, something dawned on me that there's a good argument to be made that although 12 Angry Men is something that we consume, right, entertainment-wise, there is tremendous value in the performance of it, in actually being in the performance, and that that, that yearning to perform this social, communal kind of activity might be just as important as actually consuming it. Am I am I overthinking or overstating that a little bit? You think? Uh, I wouldn't say you're overstating it, but I must say that has never occurred to me, and I didn't make a point in my research to speak to performers. I did talk to some people who have performed it, just friends of mine, students of mine. I had a student; she's a a woman from South Africa, and she says, oh, yes, I, you know, I played in in, in uh, college. I said, oh, who did you play? She says, oh, I was the foreman. And then, uh, you know, the husband of a friend of mine, oh, I played in it. I said, what were you? He says, well, I was the clerk who who brought the, the diagram. It wasn't a very big role. But, you know, they enjoyed playing in it. Um, but I haven't asked the question, you know, was it meaningful, cathartic to to play in it? I can tell you, you mentioned this documentary in uh, – from Lebanon called 12 Angry Lebanese. This it's been about 10 years ago now. Uh, this is a, a lady in Beirut who as part of her work brings drama to prisons as part of, I don't know, it's a, it's an activity, but it's also a social activity. It's, I'm, I'm not going to say it, it, um, it rehabilitates people by itself, but it's part of the rehabilitation process. And the great thing about 12 Angry Men for this group is that every one of them, every one of those convicts can identify with the boy who's the defendant, but also with many of the jurors. And so it was a terrific experience for them to, to, to act in it. Um, but I must say, I, I spent much more time thinking about what you would call the, the consumer, the person watching it, the person reading it. And as I said, I've used it in class to teach a lot about group dynamics and about issues of conformity, a lot of things about social psychology. You, you would imagine that the person who wrote this had studied social psychology, and the fact is Rose never did, but he was, he had a great intuitive understanding of human behavior and found ways to, to uh, put into, to weave into the text and the characters, many, many things about human behavior that are very, very revealing. Um, avoidance behavior, transference behavior, projection, defensiveness, all sorts of things. It's, uh, you know, the way that the, the, the way that the participation of different jurors evolves over time, how people who were confident at the beginning become a little less so, and how many people who were not confident at the beginning and didn't speak, how the Henry Fonda character creates a safe environment for them to be able to participate more fully and bring their expertise to bear. There, there's many, many wonderful things there in my field. But quite apart from that is the entire life this has in the field of law, where it operates, I think, mainly at a symbolic level. Yes, there's discussion about reasonable doubt and presumption of innocence. But the reason I think why this movie is, is so uh, dear to so many people in the legal profession is it doesn't show any lawyers. And you only see the judge for a few minutes at the beginning, and he's bored and is not very helpful. 
This is about ordinary people who take seriously their task of passing judgment on a fellow citizen. And although they are not legal professionals and have no legal training and have to struggle with themselves and with one another, with their own biases, eventually they take their job seriously and acquit themselves very well. And so at a symbolic level, it's very, very powerful. I'm going to make a clumsy confession here. When I had to do jury duty, I was chosen to be the foreman. And in the back of my mind was 12 Angry Men. This idea specifically of how do I create a space from which people can feel like they can discuss. If, if that's what you took, and that's what you tried to do as a juror. I, you know, bravo. That's terrific. What uh, jurors are often told during jury selection is, don't think about Twelve Angry Men because most people take different lessons. They remember the simulation. Well, you're not supposed to simulate things. You're supposed to just deal with the evidence that's given to you. You're not supposed to bring. You're not supposed to visit the scene of the crime. For heaven's sakes, don't bring a knife into a jury room. I mean, there's all kinds of things that the jury does here that they're not supposed to do. But if the lesson you took is one of creating a safe place to to get the best of people's inputs, that's a terrific lesson. Yeah, that that was the the basic goal. And and just to to wrap it up kind of a a, a funny way, of course, the judge says, don't do X. Right. And we go into the room. I, we all sit down. And this woman, before even the last person can sit down, she does X. <laughs> and I have to say, we're not we're not here to do that. You know, let's just create. Let's talk about what we need to discuss and do it to our best of our abilities. And and yeah, in the back of my mind was this creation of this space. And I hadn't thought about it until you just said this. But the idea of Fonda first beginning or creating the smallest of that safe space to speak, which then grows to the point that, and I I forgot the, the actor's name and I don't know the jury number, but the gentleman, he's had enough of hearing people berate the older um, juror. And he, he basically tells, I think it was Jack Warden, he tells, stop picking on him, let him speak. And so that space just grows naturally. It's not by Fonda doing anything of, uh, you know, physical intimidation. Right. That's Juror 5, played by Ed Benz. He's the house painter. He's a simple man, but he's a decent man. And he's the the one who tells Lee J. Cobb and Jack Warden, you know, back off, don't pick on them. Um, no, that's that's true. And 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 now one, one point to make here uh, is that in the first draft that Rose made, all the important insights came from Juror 8. And when he then did a revision before the television version, and then when he rewrote it for the movie version, in each successive draft, he actually backed away and gave some of the insights to other jurors. So it became a much more of a collective. And so rather than this one brilliant uh, knight in shining armor who had all the ideas, Fonda's role became much more of an indirect role of creating that space, of emboldening people to use their intelligence and to feel confident and comfortable that they could contribute. And that's really what a lot of facilitation in in group dynamics does. Uh, And a final point, you know, that uh, it wasn't the foreman that did that. The foreman uh, fumbled away any authority that he had right from the beginning. The very first words, he says, well, I'm not going to make any rules. You guys can do this any way you want. If anybody had a, had a chance to exert any sort of authority for the group, it would have been the foreman. But juror one, the foreman played by Martin Balsam, gives it away. And nature abhors a vacuum. So if he's going to give away his power, where's the power going to go? So there's a whole analysis on who tries to pick up the power and who eventually does and why the Fonda character, Juror 8, is so effective in collecting the power, whereas others who tried to pick it up were not. Again, that's not the legal side of it. That's the group dynamics, the power, the, the, the um, persuasion and influence piece of it. But there's just so much in here. You can watch it as an entertaining movie. You can watch it as a textbook in 
camera angles and lighting and direction, but you can also watch it in terms of the behavioral side or the legal side. Phil, this has been a fantastic conversation, and and I love the book. I'll be putting links to the book in my episode notes here as well. Is there anything that you'd like to tell our audience about any projects you're currently working on as well? Well, I don't have any that are related quite to this, so I think sure. uh, I, I, I won't bring those in. Uh, but um, all I can say is that, you know, 60 years after the movie was made, uh, the, it has not lost any of its relevance or pertinence. And I'll just tell one final story. I, My son, you know, he's of the generation that likes movies like, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and these things. And some years ago when he was a teenager, I said, oh, you know, have a look at this movie. And he said, oh, dad, is this one of your old black and white movies? I said, well, it is, but I think you'll like it. He sat down and he was transfixed. And I think that's the effect that this movie has on many people of any age. uh, It's a movie for the whole family. You know, there's nothing, there's no violence, there's no profanity, there's no nudity. But what it has is it speaks to something about humanity and how people work with one another. And one of the points that I made, um, you talked about the remakes. I began this book thinking, well, this is this is a story from 1954, 1955 New York that has been remade in China, in Russia, in Lebanon. I now no longer have that view. I think this is just a human story. It's about one person seeking justice and having the courage of their conviction against the powers of conformity and, um, and, and social pressure. And that is something that you can take back to the Greeks and the Romans. You can, you can find it anywhere. So I think the kernel of 12 Angry Men is about individuals who have courage of their convictions and can work effectively with others. Rose then cast that in 1954 New York, but the other versions, to my mind, are every bit as valid because they all speak to that initial insight, which is what gives it such staying power. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It speaks to the just the, the human experience so, so much and so well that it becomes a story of humanity. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Phil Rosenzweig. If you did, Check out his work in the links I've provided in the episode notes below. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe slash follow button. Every click helps us bring our message of civil discourse in front of more people. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great day.